Welcome back to Snares Book Prep Uncovered, the podcast where we talk to staff, to pupils and to parents to understand more about life at the school. Each episode I'm joined by Ralph Dalton, head teacher at the school, and together we speak to a guest, so it's a bit of a three-way conversation. Now in this episode we're speaking to the head of King Alfred School, Robert Lobato. Before we speak to him, Ralph, good afternoon, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you, and um, I'm very excited to see what Robert's got to say. I think it's something that... Uh, is it's quite a big picture um and i mean i think it might be a bit of a whopper of an episode this so if anybody's short on time or doesn't like the big picture thinking but's really interested in a you know a pithy takeaway practical takeaway i reckon you could probably fast forward to about the last two minutes of this episode um and then if that really you know think oh that's interesting you go back but um yeah i don't know if that's what you should say at the beginning of a podcast (laughs) no it's totally good but but it's less than about sort of practical application for parents of children at the school and more about people who might want to think about the bigger picture of education is that right yeah it's it's really to start the wider conversation but i think it has really practical applications essentially i saw robert speak at the isa annual conference and he was looking at the current system of assessment and how it drives so much of what is done in secondary school and basically asking the question is it fit for purpose Mm, mm. does it help or hinder the children um and he was sort of sparking that wider debate and and it did make me think of some very practical a very practical application that's appropriate for for our parents but if you're particularly of those parents of children in years five and six who are looking to that secondary step but even those of children who are much younger there's a much wider educational conversation to be had which actually they have time to influence in time for their children their children's education at sort of secondary level well i'm based on that i'm keen to speak to him myself he's there in the waiting room so if it's good with you shall we bring him in now let's do it all right let's bring him in Robert, thank you for joining us here on this podcast episode. How are you today? Yeah, I'm very well on this uh, beautiful sunny day in North London. And tell me what your world is looking like today. What kind of things have you been up to in school today? So uh, this morning, uh, as is the lot of many a head teacher, I've been in a number of meetings. Um, but I've also, the highlight of my day has definitely been uh, teaching politics to year nine. Um, and we've been looking at different political ideologies and how those relate to different political parties. It's interesting, whenever head teachers talk about the work that they do, they, they often refer to the fact that they have to do meetings and all of those things to do with the running of the school. But actually, the highlights are often those moments where they have encounters with the pupils and students in their school. That sounds very much like it's the case with you. Now, I'm looking forward to talking to you today regarding the ISA conference that you attended recently, and I believe that you gave a presentation there. First of all, can you just tell us, for people who are listening, what ISA actually is, please? Yeah, so the ISA stands for the Independent Schools Association, and it's the uh, largest of all the groupings of independent schools in the country. So it contains um, some very large and long-established schools such as our own, and also some much smaller Uh, schools of all different ages uh, right across um, the you know the geographical spread of the UK. Okay and the conference that was the annual conference I'm presuming and you were giving a talk there tell us a little bit about what the talk was all about then. So my talk focused on the education side of where schools are and where schools might be going so at a conference like this you get a range of different things things around well-being or leadership 
but my particular focus was on the educational provision. And what I was looking at was what people think the education system should be like, what the actual experience of education is like for many young people in all different kinds of schools across the country, looking at the gap between the two and how we close that gap. Okay, so when you talk about education, let's unpack that for a moment for us, if you could. I mean, what what actually is the purpose of education? So the easiest thing to say there is what the purpose of education is not. And for me, the purpose of education is not the acquisition of qualifications. That has a role within education, an important role. But from my perspective, the system is geared that that has become pretty much the sole objective of the, you know, 13 years from reception to A-level. And for me, that defines what education is far too narrowly. For me, education needs to be defined in a broader, more expansive way. It should be about uh, not only the qualifications, which play their part, but also the skills that you gain, uh, the breadth of knowledge and understanding, and the personal qualities that you develop. Okay, so how does that actually play out in school? Because I, th- I think a lot of the people listening to this would, would almost certainly agree with you. Um, but equally, when it comes to qualifications and you know GCSEs and results, that's one of the things which is quite easy to measure. So what kind of things are we talking about and how could that look in a school if things were to change a bit? Yeah, so the again, for me, um, and I, I kind of talked about this in quite a lot of detail in the conference. Um, It's not that I don't believe that the exam system has a role, nor that I don't believe that qualifications are important. And clearly those things can be measured. I think there are problems in the way that they are measured, but broadly you can, I think I'm very comfortable accepting that. The issue for me is the disproportionate importance that is placed on those relative to other things that are also important within an education. And what I'm seeking to do at King Alfred, along with my colleagues, and indeed I know many other schools are interested in this as well, is to rebalance the experience. To say, okay, you've got those parts, let's make sure they get their right and appropriate focus, but let's also make sure that we're really attending to other things that are important to young people as they grow up, as they learn, and as they mature. So what you then have to do is if you're gonna make that shift, if you're gonna do that rebalancing, you have to be quite intentional about it. It's not just gonna happen through good intentions, and you have to make structural changes in your curriculum and in your provision to make sure you bring about that rebalancing. Robert, I was going to say there was, I'd, I can't remember the, you had a set of slides that you showed right at the start on what we think education should be. Did that cover what the pupils believed education should be? Or can you remember what was what was on, on those, what the general outcomes, what people said they believed education should be? Yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, really interesting question. So what I did is I went into quite a lot of detail about a survey that had been conducted um, mainly, well, across the education centre, but it had been led by someone called Sarah Fletcher, who's the uh, head teacher at St Paul's Girls' School. And 
they did uh, a very large survey along with the um, HMC, which is another organisation of independent schools, to look at what people thought the purpose and outcomes of education should be. What they found was that, as we've already mentioned, qualifications featured in there, but actually it featured about halfway in the priorities. What, what the feedback said is that education should be about sparking a, a love of learning. It should be about preparing people for an ongoing learning, learning journey through their life. It should be about developing the skills and attributes that are going to make you successful, uh, both professionally but also personally, as you go through your post-school years and into later life as well. And those are sort of broad purposes and aims that I think when I talk to teachers and I talk to parents and I talk to pupils, pretty much everyone signs up to. Interestingly, you might have seen that the Times Education Commission put its report out last week. And that report talked in very similar terms about what the purpose of education is. So I think there's a very strong consensus amongst the vast majority of people, not everybody, who believes that those broader aims is what education is for. Unfortunately, the system that we operate in does then not fulfill those aims because it is not balanced and it is disproportionately focused on one very narrow part of what education should be doing. And actually, in some ways, that narrowing is getting worse with lots of schools starting their GCSE curriculums in year nine. Or, or maybe I'm wrong, I don't... Is, is that the case to...? Yeah, so I um, uh, used to work in uh, the state system and uh, was very much somebody who wanted to be successful within that system as a head teacher in my sort of large uh, comprehensive school. And um, we were in a you know, competitive relationship with other schools down the road and in the local area. And obviously there was a very high level of accountability for what our exam outcomes would be. What I found was that as the years went on, the start of GCSEs just became earlier and earlier. So you talk about them starting in year nine. By the time I left uh, that, that my school and that system, uh, many schools were starting their GCSEs on the first day of year seven. So you would literally come into school and that would be the journey that you were on. That is how success was defined within that system. And that's why I left, because I thought, ultimately, this is not education. Um, you know, it might be effective at producing certain outcomes, but does it really fulfill what education is? And does it serve the young people well? And to both on both of those, questions, my answer was a conclusive no. So I then found myself moving from the state system to the independent system, where we have much more autonomy over what our success criteria are. Now that doesn't mean there aren't pressures in the independent system too, because clearly there are, and you have to show that outcomes are good. But there is much greater level of permission and freedom to define education more broadly. And what we're trying to do here is to really grasp that agenda. And um, we're putting in certain things in place 
so that we're not just talking about it, we're actually doing it in practice too. Have I imagined, did you have a slide that basically had a picture of a dog being wagged by a tail? I did. (laughs) And that was essentially saying, you know, we've got the assessment framework leading the agenda and that's not the right thing. Is is this because GCSEs are a hangover from the old uh, GCE and O-levels, which would have been the main final qualification most pupils left school with is this is this one of the problems we've got an archaic system yeah so i think there's quite a lot of things that have happened so first of all when the gcse's were introduced in the late 80s the majority of kids left school at 16 then as people might be aware in under new labor in the noughties the they changed the school leaving age and now it went to 17 and now it's gone to 18. So everyone is obliged to be in education until 18. So to put such a huge emphasis on exam results at 16 doesn't seem to make any sense. And that's a point that's made very well by Ken Baker, who was the education secretary who introduced the GCSEs in his first place, but now thinks they should be, we should move on from them. I think the other thing that's happened Hmm. is that when they were introduced, they were very much about supporting young people. But what's happened with the accountability agenda for schools is they've really become a way to judge schools rather than to support young people. So schools have a lot at stake with these GCSE results. Uh, certainly within the state system, your school depends on its Ofsted rating, and that Ofsted rating is very closely correlated lots of research shows this, to the GCSE results that the school gets. And the reason they do GCSE results rather than A-level results, which actually would be much more important for the child, is because all schools do GCSEs um, because they go up to 16, whereas not all schools do A-levels, and therefore you can't do the cross-school comparison based on the A-levels. So it's the system leading this rather than what's in the best interest of the child. The third problem Mm. that I see is that certainly since 2015, the GCSEs themselves have been changed very significantly. And uh, this was the reforms of uh, Michael Gove, uh, supported by Dominic Cummings. And they had a very particular view around education, which is that it's all about um, a knowledge-rich curriculum and that really anything else should be very much deprioritized within an educational experience. Now, that is um, a actually quite a minority view within the educational world, but the it's been incredibly influential and is has kind of, in my view, distorted what the education experience should be because it has lost a balance that was previously there. So when you put those three things together, it's clear to huge amounts of people that GCSEs are no longer serving the purpose that is, is constructive or helpful. And interestingly, again, the Times Education Commission talked about slimming down the number of GCSEs and indeed reforming the way that they worked. Robert, just to address something that you mentioned earlier, you, you mentioned about the schools having competitive relationships with other schools. And of course, as a parent myself with two teenage children, when parents and prospective parents in particular are looking around at which school to send their children to, one of the few things that they can go on is 
the set of results that have come from that school. So how practically can things change when that's kind of generally speaking the behavior of parents? I don't think I'm alone there at all. And schools have limited ways of demonstrating their value, quote unquote, to prospective parents. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point, um, Simon. But what, what is interesting about it is that when research has been done on how parents choose schools, actually exam results don't feature that highly. They're actually much more interested in the broader experience of what, of, of what their child is going to have over the five, seven, 13 years, whatever it's going to be. Now that doesn't mean, again, it's not a factor, but it's clearly not the only factor. And um, also, you know, the, the, the results of a school are not the same as the results of your child in that school. So you can have your child can do, you know, the results may be on the surface sort of, you know, reasonably average, but you know that your child is going to do really well because that it depends on the ability and aptitude of your particular child. If you have a highly selective school where everyone has to, you know, take a, a test with, with a very high entrance bar, of course, the results are going to be higher than a mixed ability school. But your child will probably do just as well, if not better, in a, in, in, in a different environment and um, potentially get other benefits from being in that environment too. Because clearly when you have these uh, res- schools with you know, high levels of results, there's a very competitive culture between the kids. Uh, even if the school doesn't want it to be there, it is almost certainly going to be there. Uh, that was the experience I had growing up and I don't think it's changed that much from from what I see. I I go and do inspections. I see that in schools where I I go and inspect. And, you know, there are costs to that. There are some benefits, but there are also costs. And I think most, when when you look at the research about what parents want for their children, sure, they want them to do academically well. They want them to have good, uh, good opportunities for progression in the future. But they also want them to be happy and they want them to develop broader personal qualities and skills that are going to help develop them as young people and into adult life. And Robert, are there any schools that you know of that are applying any different ways of doing this already? Yeah, so um, there are both schools in the state system and in the independent world uh, that are grappling with this agenda um, to change their structures So it is, as I said a bit earlier, intentionally creating a broader educational experience. Just before I come to that, I think it's worth saying that I think schools do an amazing job within the system that they have. The problem is they're kind of mitigating the problems of the system and that therefore is always kind of, there's a tension in that. So for me, it is, whilst you can do the mitigation, it's better if you just do a different system if you if you actually make those structural changes. So within the state system, there's two very kind of well-known and high-profile examples. One is School 21, which is in Newham in East London. The other is the XP School Group, which is up in uh, the north of England. And they are taking a different approach, again, intentionally with a much broader uh, attitude. And both uh, sets of schools are being very successful. In the independent world, um, we've been connecting with lots of other schools who are grappling with this agenda. 
So, in fact, we recently held a conference here at King Alfred where we brought all these schools together. So some of the examples are in St Paul's Golf School, which I've already mentioned, which has introduced alternatives to GCSE courses. You've got St Edward's, St Teddy's in Oxford, which is very well known, um, a very academic school, again, uh, slimming down the number of GCSEs and having broader courses alongside. Um, a very well-known example is Beedale School, um, where they have been going for 15 years with a mixture of GCSEs, but other courses that again have this more expansive view. And we've been having interesting conversations recently with Latimer School, um, which is again a really well-known school in, in West London, who are um, grappling with a, a really radical agenda um, around GCSEs. They're, they're, they're consulting on it at the moment, but really looking to uh, have a very different approach in years 10 and 11. And then alongside that, we here at King Alfred are also taking steps to, you know, broaden the, the curriculum and the offer to young people. Interesting that you mentioned Beedales, because isn't there a connection originally between, well, the origins of King Alfred's and Beedales? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's lots of historical links. Um, we come from slightly different traditions and that Beedales was, came from a kind of Christian tradition originally, whereas we come from a very firmly atheistic tradition. Um, but there's been a lot of connection between staff over the years. And in fact, one of our, uh, the deputy head here re now, uh, has recently joined us from Beedales. I see. Okay, so tell us then a little bit about what's happening within your school. What, what, what could people expect to see that's a little bit different at King Alfred's compared to uh, another school in the local area? Yeah, so I think there's, there's two bits I can focus on. So the first is uh, in years, we're an all through school. So we go from reception to A-level and we, at years six, seven and eight, we've introduced a new curriculum. For two days a week in that curriculum, rather than do conventional lessons, moving from English to maths to French to science, instead we've introduced what are called interdisciplinary inquiries. And these do two things. First of all, they bring groups of subjects together. So on the one hand, English, art and history, and on the other hand, um, science, maths and technology. And secondly, what they do is they're based around inquiries. So there's an inquiry question that the uh, kids work through uh, that is a, a big kind of global question that they have to get their teeth into. They have to research about it, they have to learn about it, and at the end of it, they produce a, a big exhibition of, of the work that they've done during the course of that term. And um, so they have, again, going back to what I've said earlier, this is not throwing the baby out of the bathwater because three days a week, they're having a conventional year seven timetable. But then that is balanced uh, with this other experience on those other two days of the week. And uh, it's a really exciting and vibrant pro pro program and you can just see the level of engagement that the kids have in it because they're really owning their learning in a different way uh, to the more conventional approach. So that's one thing we're doing and, and um, as ever with these things it's work in progress but we're very excited about that project and we've also designed a very different space where that project takes place. So it doesn't look anything like a traditional classroom. It is a really big open plan space. There's different areas. There's a presentation area. There's what's called a kind of fireside area where you can work in groups. 
there's little nooks and crannies where you can go and work individually or in a pair and um, uh, it's a, a, a very different kind of space more what you would find in a school in California uh, near Silicon Valley for example. The other uh, change that we're making is links to this thing about GCSEs so we're not getting rid of GCSEs here but we are going to be changing the balance and again we're talking with parents at the moment so our current position is that alongside the GCSE offer there are some courses you can do that are non-GCSE but you can do all GCSEs if you prefer and those courses are again interdisciplinary and inquiry based so one is called global challenges where you uh, learn a lot about different challenges that are going on uh, across the world at the moment whether they're about the climate emergency sustainability inequality refugees and there's a, a process there to learn in depth about a range of those issues and to learn about those you've got to be interdisciplinary because you can't learn around climate change just through science it's also geography and history and philosophy and sociology and poetry it's a combination of things and then um, having learned about those areas the, the the students then choose one thing they're particularly interested in and they have to basically create their own project um, in the real world around that issue. So it might be running a fundraising event, it might be making a podcast uh, or a series of podcasts as we're doing now, it might be um, you know, creating a huge public piece of art. And those not, will not be assessed in the same way that GCSEs will be assessed, they're all about you know, there'll be portfolios which show the development of the work and the learning and the thinking that the child has done as they've gone through. And um, they, you know, it's really trying to say, although there will be some assessment there, the learning is for the learning's sake. And those will sit alongside your GCSE qualifications, which you get as well. Robert, I, was, I seem to remember that at the conference when you spoke, you sort of maybe analysed this too strong word, but you, you made the point about actually how many GCSEs you need if you're going to go on and study at university and whatever you're going to study. It's Because children are learnt, you know, studying for 10 GCSEs, but actually they don't need 10, do they? Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. When you dig down into the websites... Most places require, well, to get to university, you only need two. You need English, language, and maths. And those are sort of requirements for matriculation pretty much in all university courses. Uh, to transfer to other sick forms, generally you need five or six. Uh, for example, at Eton, you need six. Um, and certainly all the schools around here, you either need five or six. We did find one or two outliers where you needed eight, but they were really, really rare. And um, what we also realised with that is that often they take students from abroad, for example, and they're not coming with GCSEs. So if you don't have all eight, you've still got other things that you can talk about. And of course, what those schools are interested in is you know, the quality of intellectual development, the skills, what you're going to bring to the school. It's you know, not just you know, that you've got eight sevens at GCSE. They're, they're, they're broader than that. Um, in terms of university, um, we've talked about that already a little bit. And what's interesting is that every university seems to have a slightly different process for admissions. There's no standardisation at all. 
but effectively we've talked with uh, admissions tutors from a range of places and, uh, and as I said, BDELS has been doing this for 15 years and they're very open to accepting a range of different things, uh, not just, you know, the typical GCSE. And for employers, what we're finding is that many of them are really not using GCSEs or A-levels um, anymore. Um, they are instead doing their own strength-based assessments. Because what they're finding is that the skills and qualities that are coming through from the kids who've got very high A-level results are not necessarily the skills and qualities they want in their workforce. So they're saying it doesn't really tell us what we need. So they're bringing in their own um, assessment processes instead. Robert, it's been amazing talking to you. It really has been. If, if anybody wants to find out more about King Alfred School, is it best that they visit your website? Yeah, so we've got our website, um, which you can just find with uh, King Alfred. Uh, there are two King Alfred Schools. There's, uh, so we're the one in London. We're the independent one. Um, and uh, yeah, if anyone is interested in coming to visit or see the work we do, then there's a contact form there. And, you know, we welcome a lot of visitors actually from all over the world. And we're always delighted to show people around. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure we put a link to the school website in the show notes for this podcast episode. But thank you very much for your time. Thanks for uh, explaining all of this to us, unpacking this this new way of, of measuring and, and learning and education in general. Thank you very much. That's a pleasure. It's been great to have the conversation. Yeah, thank you, Robert. I mean, I was excited when I heard you speak at the ISA and um, I'm even even more excited just having had this. Um, I think it's a really, I think it's a really important conversation um, to start. Um, so thank you very much. So Ralph, here we are. Back to you and me. That was Robert Labarta, head of King Alfred School. Uh, tell me your thoughts on a couple of the things that he was saying. Yeah, I mean, I think the first sort of in no particular, one of the first things that came to mind when Robert was speaking was uh, when he was talking about the narrowing of the curriculum um, and everything focusing on assessment, it really brought to mind the um, famous Ken Robinson TED Talk. I think it's called Do Schools Kill Creativity? Um, and it's had numerous um views i think i think it's the most popular one ever isn't it it's something something like 73 million views mm. um and if you haven't seen it um it's well worth watching because it's quite entertaining but it really is this i so ken robinson frames the problem like this i think he says essentially the whole education system is in the image of the academics obviously the first sort of scholarly institutions were the universities and everything else is framed in that image he says that everything was just like one long interview for university and he says something like i don't know about you but you know he said i am an academic and my friends are academics he said but you know they're not they're not very proportionate they're not very proportionate representation of life you know an academics the only reason an academic has a body is to take his head to the next party <laughs> um i think is his joke but he tells it much better than i do so if you like that watch it but um and I think that's, I think, you know, and when you then look at, when you ask people, what do you want from education? Academic results are in the mix, but they're not the primary mix. And yet they do seem to really be driving everything else. So that was, that was, that was one thought that I had. Um, my second 
thought was, I thought it was really interesting when he said um, the results of the school aren't the results of the child. Exactly. I was about to bring up that because that, 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 that really shouted out at me, actually. That, that was very, very interesting. Tell me what you thought about that. Well, actually, I was going to ask you. I mean, it's terribly rude of me to answer a question with a question, but you're, you're a parent. So if you'd had this pitch, you know, when you were looking for schools for your children, what would you have made of it? Yeah, it's, it's in many ways, I'm quite fortunate with my, with my own children because they are the kind of children that would have done very well in any school. And actually, the school that they went to was was a state school and, and not a great state school either. Uh, I hope they're not listening. Uh, and they both did very, very well. So, you know, had my wife and I at the time been fixated on GCSE results of different schools, then then that would have definitely swayed our choice because that was something that we that, that we took on board. I don't know what the thoughts of other parents would be, you know, because it is quite easy, I think, just to look at exam results. But I was encouraged that he was suggesting that when parents are looking at schools, that that they they do want to look at the all around education of their children and not just the GCSE results. I think that's what's interesting about King Alfred, the the school that Robert's leading, is that they, they are looking for this balance because and, and he is quite measured. You know, he gave some examples in his ISA um, presentation of schools that are much more at the avant-garde, you know, in terms of this agenda. But, you know, he's he's sort of taking a much more measured approach and one that's much more akin, I think, to where I sort of sit. You know, we, we have to operate in the environment we're in, don't we? But I think to some degree, you're, the experience of your children, like you said, you know, th- they are the biggest difference. They make the biggest difference in their education. Um, and they... You know, children will do well wherever they go and, you know, children will do not so well wherever they go, mainly actually probably based on their attitudes and their beliefs. So things like being optimistic, perseverance, discipline, um, delayed gratification, um, they are probably much more likely to to determine how well a child is going to do. So I I thought that was quite interesting. Um, And the other one is when he talks about the environment of the school. And I think this is, again, what is key. You know, if, if your whole, what's the child experience mm. of education and what's their relationship to education, if everything is narrowed down to just GCSEs mm-hmm. from year seven, one, do you come away thinking school is about passing exams, so it's about an outcome, whereas, and that's surely going to, and maybe this is where that title does, Do Schools Kill Creativity?, Maybe that's where that comes from. If that's what you think, if you think it is just a a process to pass an, an outcome, mm-hmm. then you're not going to be curious about the world. And then you're not going to go into the workforce and think, right, well, how do I solve this problem? Or what does that happen? It, you, you go into the world thinking, right, tell me the knowledge and I will apply it. Um, and I don't think that's the attitude that we need our workforce and our young people to have. So I think this is where this, what is quite a perhaps an esoteric kind of conversation has has practical application because I think you know he said something like um like all all school environments there's a cost and there's costs and there's benefits you know you can go to a very academic school and there are benefits to that and there are costs to it and one thing that I thought was interesting was actually those costs and those benefits aren't the same for every child those costs and those benefits I think will depend on 
the child. Those costs and those benefits are almost a reflection of the child. So if you are, if, for example, your your interest and your enthusiasm and your passion and therefore probably your attainment level lies in you know, history or art or drama, and you go to a highly academic school or a school that just prizes maths and English, then are you going to see yourself and your success reflected in that, the ethos of that school? And how's that going, what's that going to do to your self-esteem? So I think this is what I mean about the, the costs and the benefits. They're not straightforward. They're not the same for every child. And I think this is this practical application that it made me think of, that as a parent who's approaching thinking, right, where does my child move to for their secondary education? And what should I ask of these secondary schools? And what should I look at? I think it really is in that cost and benefit. What is it my child, where, is my, where are my child's passions? Are they going to see what they are passionate about um, recognised and celebrated at the school? And equally, more practically, when it comes to GCSE choices, and none of the schools we feed are, um, are as progressive as King Alfred, but, you know, ask those schools... What are your onward paths? I think this is a really key um, idea because the pupils, as you, as you sort of say, will do well wherever they go, particularly to the schools we feed because, you know, they are all good schools and they all have great onward pathways and they all have generally the same onward pathways. However, certain schools have certain um, specific pathways. So, for example, they might have the International Baccalaureate as a pathway. Not all the schools do that. They may have much more defined apprenticeship routes. Not all do. They may have more connections with American universities or conservatoires. Not all the schools. So, and that may that may be more important than the general um, reputation of the school based just on their exam results. And I think it's really important. One really practical question I think parents could ask is when it comes to GCSEs, how is it done? How many how many options can you take? You know, are you going to have to drop a subject you love? You know, you might want to do art and drama and engineering and computer design, but you're not allowed to do computer design or, you know, engineering and computing because you've got to pick one of those slots is taken by a language or whatever so I think you could actually you know ask look if, if my child was taking GCSEs today what would their options be and then think to yourself oh actually is that going to give them a range of options that they're going to be excited about and Robert's talk one of the things I took away was that and I thought I've never suggested to parents that they ask them about their GCSE option choices and I think that could be a really practical and important question to ask so hence the reason why I wanted to invite him on and um well, it, it, I mean, it's great to see schools making changes like this, but do you think that there is an equal responsibility on the attitudes of parents to change? Because I'm just picturing a group of parents maybe at a dinner party, and, and I think in society we tend to add more weight to you know, the stories that parents tell of their own children if they came out with straight A's or A stars or nines in their GCSEs in things like, you know, English and maths and history and classics and, and things like that, as opposed to coming out with a super good grade in drama or art. Yeah, I mean, I'm slightly wary about talking on behalf of anybody or or saying what anybody, you know, I, I, I'm not entirely sure I am an expert. What I do think is... A, a balanced conversation 
is what we are always looking for in society. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder if we're very good at having balanced conversations. Um, certainly our media don't present many balanced conversations. I think the human being likes a simple story. I think the data says, you know, that's why we, we work on stereotypes and, um, you know, things like, you know, heuristics. That's, that's how we work as an animal. Um, but a balanced conversation where we t- also, that's important, where we take our ego out of the mix um and you know we we don't it's a, it's a it's a fine balance isn't it between abdicating responsibility for your child's education and and not seeing it as a reflection on your parenting ability um so it just i just a, i think this is part of that balanced conversation because you know this is not saying maths and english aren't important it's just saying make i think what we're, i'm trying to get across is it's look at your child and let and make sure the environment fits your child it's you know which is better the you know the sea or the mountains it's certainly the sea for the fish but you know i, I shouldn't have picked mountains i can't think of any mountain animals now <laughs> quick simon help me out with a mountain animal for my for my analogy a but, mountain goat you know, um, a mountain goat it doesn't do very well underwater there you go yeah. so you know it's about picking the right environment and having a more balanced conversation um would be helpful in this. I think you answered it brilliantly. Uh, but I also think time is running away with us, so we probably should bring this podcast episode to a close. I think you're right. But of course, if anyone's listening to this right now, and if you want to find out more about the school, then just search up Snares Book Prep. Or if you want to find out more about King Alfred School, then it's kingalfred.org.uk. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Thank you for listening to Robert. And of course, listening to head teacher Ralph Dalton. Ralph's about to say thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Bye-bye.